Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We're still in the early stages of 2021 and clearly New Year's resolutions are kicking in because at the moment we are getting record new accounts at NAPTRADE. A lot of people uh, wanting to get started with investing, which is fantastic to see. But investing is a long-term game. So if you're getting started now, or even if you've been doing this for quite a while, it's always so brilliant to hear from those who've been successful over decades, what they've done, what they've learned, and what you might like to think about for your investments. Today, I'm joined by Steve Hiscock, the Chair and Managing Director at SG Hiscock, which you may have heard of, about his journey as an investor, uh, his journey also as a professional investor managing money for others and his advice for newcomers. Steve, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Gemma, and uh, thanks for inviting me to talk with you today. Steve, we'll get straight into it. You've got a fascinating CV, so I had a look at this before I got started. Can you tell us about how you got started in investing both personally and professionally? Yeah, sure. Look, I guess my whole investment journey started with dad, actually. Um, He bought me some Woodside Petroleum shares in the early 1980s and well, I would have been in my late teens then. And he bought them for, depending on the, the day, but the share price is roughly $27 now. So he, he, was a, he was a great investor. He was a lawyer by trade, but he just loved researching companies, particularly small caps and looking at their growth potential, their upside, their stories. And he was really, he would have been really the first person to start me on my investing journey from a personal perspective. He was clever or fortunate, I guess, enough to buy CSL in the very first years of its existence, and he never sold. So, you know, when he passed away a few years ago, it represented close to 20% of his whole portfolio, which is extraordinary, really. Uh, But interestingly, when we looked at his portfolio, he also had about 40% in small companies, Australian small caps. So he wasn't probably as diversified as most of our equity funds are, and as most people would deem prudent, but certainly, you know, from that perspective, his, his long-term performance was extraordinary, really. In a, in a professional sense, it was slightly different. I, I went to uni and did commerce and, and so forth. And my first exposure to the investment world from a professional perspective was as a back office uh, person doing contract notes uh, over summer at Potter Partners. Potter Partners is now called UBS. And uh, at, at that stage, we're still Potter Partners, an old partnership-style stockbroker, um, one of the real classic stockbrokers in Australia at the time in the 80s. And um, I really loved it, um, even though it was just checking off contract notes. And uh, I loved it so much. And then they offered me a short-term role in Potter Partners in London, uh, in, in the settlements area as well. And I absolutely loved that. I went with my partner at the time, but a wife now, Jane, uh, and she she headed over as a retail exec because she ran the Country Road store here in, in Burke Street in Melbourne. So she had a lot of fun uh, working for various retail organisations in London. So that was just a brilliant time for us. Uh, then I came back to an organisation which now no longer exists, interestingly, called State Bank of Victoria. Uh, SBV, as it was known, was taken over by Commonwealth Bank in probably 90, probably 1990. And at State Bank, I was a corporate credit analyst. And I really credit that with 
really helping me understand companies and cash flow because at the time we were assessing companies and we were assessing companies as a bank does with the ability to pay back their money that we owe that you know that we lend them and for me that really made me realize there's a huge difference between what they state as their income in their profit and loss statement and what their actual cash flow is and i think even to this day, I don't think a, a lot of investors still don't truly appreciate just how big the difference is between cash flow and income. Uh, the reality is it's actual cash flow that pays back debt and it's not reported income. A reported income, uh, as, as you and many of your listeners will know, it can be manipulated and distorted by valuation changes and, and whatever. So it's really, for me, that, that lesson stayed with me uh, that I learned earlier on luckily and stayed with me ever since the next move in a in a career sense was in 1987 i joined wardley investment management limited wardley was owned by hong kong and shanghai banking corporation at the time and i joined as an australian equity analyst uh, back in 1987 that became hsbc asset management in 1990 and uh, you know it, it was interesting because i i really did a lot when I was there at HSBC, I was there for about uh, probably seven or eight years. I was involved in the direct property side, so uh, directly involved in ca modelling uh, cash flows for acquisitions that we did. I was involved in, I was a listed property securities analyst as stocks like Westfield and, and Stockland and GPT and so on. I was also an Australian equity analyst and I was also eventually on the asset allocation committee. So that's the committee that chooses for balance funds, chooses between international shares and property and so on. So that, that was really that was really my early years. And then I actually joined you, really, National. Um, I guess National was part of, National Asset Management was part of NAB and I w was appointed in 95 as the head of Australian equities there, a, a very large portfolio. And then I became general manager in about 1999, 2000, uh, general manager of the whole national asset management side. So, yes, I was a, a, a NAB lifer for a while and I really, really loved it. Uh, what happened was um, national bought MLC and so the whole business unit was merged into MLC ultimately. And so NAB encouraged us to start up SGH, uh, SG Hiscock and Company, which is a boutique fund manager, and so we did. We started that. Uh, several of us from National started that up in two thousand and one, and you know we're still here today. I'm twenty twenty years later. Uh, we there are five of us from NAM, National Asset Management, still here. Uh, collectively, we invested maybe a million dollars. Uh, the five of us into our funds. We were faced with the prospect of no pay for three years, which given I had school-aged kids at the time was a pretty tough ask, but but certainly has been a, a wonderful thing that we've done. And, you know, today, if we look at it, we've now got, I guess, probably more than 4,000 clients. We've got two and a bit billion in funds under management and, and we've got 36 people. So we probably, we've got 11 equity funds, Australian shares, small caps, large companies, international shares, income, real estate trusts, listed property trusts, um, as well as a managed discretionary account business. So it's a completely different beast these days. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's how I got into the industry, and and that's really what I've done in a professional sense as well, Jenna. Steve, that's so fascinating to hear. I I love hearing people's stories about how they've come to investing. I also, I've told the story before that I actually got into investing because of my dad. He's not a professional investor by any means, um, but he was learning how to invest when I was a teenager. He ordered a course. I was going to say online. That's not true. He ordered it, you know, like mail order, I think. And um, and he was sort of learning about valuation and all of those sorts of things. And it was, um, it was a real privilege to watch someone learn how to do it rather than going, this is... You know, it's just something he does and he must do it well because he's always done it. Watching him go through the process was quite powerful and realising it was something you could learn I think was really great. I love you talking about credit analytics, which sounds boring as anything if you don't know what yeah. it is, but just just assessing cash flows. One of our better investors was actually in touch with me today um, saying he loves cash flow because it's the only thing you can't lie about. <laughs> yeah, that that is absolutely true. It's, uh, so you've covered this whole spectrum of asset classes, which is quite unusual now. I mean, we speak to a lot of people on this podcast, a lot of professionals, they've got a great passion for one asset class or another. They might be a small caps guy or an international. I know someone who's Asian equities only. You know, we've got people who've got, um, you know, property expertise, whatever it might be. Do you have a soft spot for any particular type of asset? Is there anything that you love over and above the others? It's a good question. I, um, I mean, it, yeah, it, what you say is really right. I mean, I hadn't really sort of thought about it from that perspective, but I mean, I do have a real mix, uh, you know, because I've had exposure to direct real estate, commercial real estate, um, as well as listed uh, stuff and Australian equities and asset allocation. Uh, I've got exposure to pretty much all the major asset classes over my investing lifestyle and life, lifetime. And I mean, so I guess directly to address your question, I don't actually have a soft spot for any particular asset class. I, it, I mean, I probably should, but I mean, what my experience has taught me is that it's so important to diversify across asset classes and to be impartial, not to get caught up in the emotions of investing. Um, it's often difficult to do that, but it's really important. And because at any point in time, I guess, you know, the thing is that some asset classes are going to be doing well and some asset classes are not going to be doing well. And that's why diversification really helps. Uh, you know. And, and the, the asset classes that are not doing well, which you'd be tempted to hate at the time, really that's when you should be looking at those asset classes and, and thinking about whether you should be adding exposure. But, but having said all that, I guess in a purely emotional sense, I've probably spent more time involved in uh, real estate investment trusts or what used to be called listed property trusts than more than more than any other asset class. So I'd, I'd have to say I do have a soft spot for A REITs, and I love their income. Um, we have a great listed property income fund here at SGH, which you know basically just looks at giving income. So um, you know, it, and it's just the normal normal sort of stocks that many of the listeners will have. You know, such as Uni by Redamco and Stockland, and uh, though you know GPT and, and Dexas and so on. So. In a purely emotional sense, I'd probably have to say A REITs, actually, when I think about it. I shouldn't have made you choose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's, 
Your point about diversification is really interesting. I mean, I find this fascinating. Most investors will have heard that wisdom before that you should diversify across asset classes. And we know financial planners work to an asset allocation matrix almost, you know, where there's a little pie chart that shows you how much you should have allocated to each asset class. But for a lot of retail investors, you know, if we look at their portfolios and self-managed super funds are where we've got the best data, people have bought the thing that works for them and when it stops working, you know, they start looking elsewhere. But, they, you know, we found, you know, with Australian equities, most SMSFs are heavily overweight Australian equities, heavily overweight banks, um, cash and term deposits. Very, you know, they did absolutely have LPTs and AREITs, as you say, because, you know, they understood uh, the value of getting income from those. And because so many of them are in pension phase, they've got that strong tendency to attach to things that give them income and frank and credits and stuff that they're familiar with. And they didn't have any exposure to international. And then with the last 12 years, when you look at the US, just absolutely rocketing uh, back from the GFC and the big tech companies there just blowing everybody else out of the water. A lot of them have sort of gone, oh God, I need to get some international exposure. I need to think about these other asset classes. So a lot of us sort of are forced to break out of our comfort zone because you know, the world can pass you by a bit. And your experience where you've been doing all of the different things is quite telling. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, for for investors that have only had Australian equity shares for the last 50 years or, you know, 30 years or even 20 years, they've actually had a pretty good journey. Um, it's really only the last 10 years, as you say, Gemma, that um, where international equity markets have really strongly outperformed and the vast majority of that outperformance is really driven by US outperformance. So, you know, the Apple, you know, Microsoft and those sort of stocks. Those top five stocks that uh, (laughs) make everything else look boring, right? So you talked about some of the stuff your dad was holding early on and CSL is... uh, that one, that one that we all wish we bought yeah. in 1990, whatever <laughs> it was. Um, I bought it in the early 2000s, but I didn't hold it all the way through. Did all right, yeah. but uh, tell you what, it's. Um, can you talk us through what are some of your best early investments? You were talking about actually running money back in the 80s. Yeah, what what were the things that made you think, God, I could I could really do this? You know, I could do it well. Yeah, it's a good question. Look, Woodside definitely gave me an understanding of what can happen if you've got real quality, uh, a real quality company. So, and a lot of investors would have Woodside. Um, And really, I guess ever since then, I've been fascinated by investing as a result. And, you know, I'd encourage everyone to read as many historical investment books they can find because particularly ones about investment bubbles, because everything happens in cycles. So the things that happened in the 1800s or even the 1600s, if you think about the tulip crisis, I loved reading about the tulip crisis. You know, the fact that there was, you know, if you think about it, the price of a a humble tulip bulb in the 1600s was worth, you know, five to ten times the basic annual wage at at the time is is just frightening. Um, And for those you know, for people who are genuinely interested in, in this, there's a there's actually a fantastic book called um, The Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And um, it's still in print today. It was actually written in the 1800s, believe it or not. Um, it's been updated since then, but it's got a history of all the bubbles and manias 
South Sea Bubble is another classic one, the Mississippi Bubble. Um, what it does is it really gives you an understanding of how crowd think works. And it does actually give you cause, to be honest, to think about whether some of the prices of some of the world's largest companies uh, that we look at today, uh, even some of the Australian companies, uh, are, do they really reflect the underlying valuation or are they simply just, are we witnessing yet another mania in, in the case of some of these stocks, uh, particularly the ones that have yet to go past break even? You know, some of these some of these stocks are making stupendous losses still and their share prices are still rocketing. Uh, and it was interesting. I watched, um, it might have been Alan Kohler, actually. Um, it, it was some, so it was on ABC, I think, and they were saying the best performing sector in the US for the last 12 months was the unprofitable tech companies, which is a little bit scary. Um, but it, I, I guess professionally, um, after... Going back to your original question, after after Woodside, I'd say probably the in the early 1990s, there was a property crash and there was a lot of unlisted property funds and they had really high quality real estate and they were forced to list on a stock exchange because the unit, the unlisted unit trusts in property land just that the industry ground to a halt and they couldn't fund any redemptions. And these things listed at you know, 30, 40, 50% discount to the value of the assets underlying them. And we were very lucky to get in very early because we understood the real estate component to unlisted property trusts. And we bought heaps of these things for our clients and made so much money for the clients. And, and this this was the really the birth of what's now the listed property trust sector um, born out of the crash of the 90s. So I think that really was the start. And I really was... You know, and we were all delighted by the fact that we we looked at these things and thought, you know, this thing's worth five dollars a share, but it's listing on the stock exchange at two dollars fifty, and there's no debt in it or virtually no debt in it. This is a a laydown, and in fact, it was. So I think from there, I really understood the importance of valuation, not not to become overly reliant on it because there's other things, but you know how important valuation is to a long-term investor. It's so fascinating looking back, uh, you know, and the value of talking to people like yourself who've had, you know, decades of experience is this, this broader perspective you can bring. So I, you know, I've been in markets for a while, but when you've had a 12-year bull market, uh, a very short, sharp shock like we had last year, but brought on by a pandemic, so completely left field event, uh, mm. And then this unbelievable return to record highs, it's, it's quite shocking. And we keep using yeah. the word unprecedented and you feel like an idiot saying it over and over and over again, but it's unprecedented, right? Um, yeah. And yet these, these cycles do come. It doesn't feel to me like we've really worked our way through a full cycle yet. But do you have any experiences, or have you had any experiences that really shook your confidence as an investor, or just shook your confidence in the market as a whole? Ah, oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, look, I think, as you keep saying, Gemma, I've been around for decades, which is a little bit depressing. But um, when you have been in the markets for that long, uh, one of the things you do learn is it's inevitable to get your, you realize you're going to make mistakes. 
And I think the important thing uh, when you have these experiences that you're referring to is to actually treat them as a as an opportunity to learn. Um, seeing mistakes and bad experiences, they're going to happen all the time. But the important thing is to understand from them, um, to understand sell-offs occur on a regular basis. The markets are cyclical. You know, roughly every 10 years since I've been in the market, there's been a massive crash. If you start in 1987, um, there was the crash of 1987. In the mid-90s, there was another real massive sell-off. Um, obviously, the GFC. So there's a, certainly a, a real cyclicality to it. Um, specifically, in, in terms of stocks, there was a, a stock back in the 90s called Burnsville. And that's a great example for me anyway, um, of thinking, I really thought I knew a lot about the company. I knew the management really well. The only problem was um, that my whole investment premise was wrong. And what I mean by that is I bought into it um, in the late 90s on behalf of clients. And then it was disclosed that the price war, war they were having with um, McCormick's was, which was another Spice competitor, had created an absolutely disastrous outcome for the company. And in fact, um, they hadn't disclosed it, but they were almost broke. And when they actually dis um, did disclose this to the stock exchange, the share price plummeted. It fell more than 80% in probably one or two days. It was it, That certainly shook my confidence, um, but it also made me understand uh, how important diversification is. That, you know, ironically, even though we had this disaster in our portfolio, the overall portfolio that we were running actually had a really good year. Um, it wasn't because of Burns Philp, obviously, it was because of the other stocks in the portfolio. So that was a really good learning. The tech wreck is probably another one. In the, you know, in the early 2000s, tech stocks were wildly overpriced and very, very sexy. And it was a real salutary lesson. Everyone loved tech stocks. It was important to own tech stocks but then one day the music stopped, and I'm, I'm not I'm not saying this is going to happen again. But but certainly this did happen back in in 2000. Stocks literally halved, and then they halved again, and then they halved again, and many of them literally just stopped trading ever uh, and never traded again. So it really showed me the importance of understanding the investment premise and and valuation too. I'd, I'd have to say. There probably are a couple of stocks on the ASX today that bear some resemblance in, in terms of market capitalization of stocks. So I, I would encourage investors just to look very carefully when they, when they buy the really, really super popular stocks, just to think about um, the premise of valuation that they're assuming. In terms of other stocks, News Corporation, um, you may not remember this, but News Corporation almost went broke in the early 90s. And... In this case, we didn't actually have an investment in it, but uh, we were lucky enough to buy it after it became clear the banks weren't going to put it under. Um, but that that was incredibly close. One of the most iconic companies globally um, could well have been put under um, by its lenders. And um, the fact that it wasn't, it actually became one of the best investments our company made. And huge credit to our head of equities who had the foresight to invest in it. Um, that was back at HSBC. Um, 87, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm really, <laughs> I'm, I've got a lot of experiences when I think about it, but 1987, the crash in 1987 was probably my first exposure to a systemic meltdown, and that was incredible to watch. It literally happened overnight in the US, and then the market in Australia here fell 30 to 40% the next day. 
Um, and that was really quite a salutary lesson. And um, again, there were speculative companies that simply never traded again. Um, and again, that's, I'm not necessarily saying that's going to happen here or anytime soon, but um, it's interesting to note that some of these, literally some of these companies never traded ever again and they went broke shortly after. It was certainly an eye-opener for me. Um, you know, I'd started my job at Wardley Investment Management in August of 87 and the crash happened three months later. So I must admit, I did wonder if I'd made the right career choice. Oh, so, that's I mean, crazy. Yeah. Sorry, that timing yeah. is incredible. Oh, I know. Can you believe it? I really did. <laughs> I thought, you know, here I am with a, a, a reputable fund manager and our funds under management are down 40% in three months. So, so it's kind of, um, yeah, kind of salutary. But uh, look, uh, probably the most interesting systemic meltdown for me was the GFC, even more than COVID to a certain extent. Seeing really healthy companies put under pressure by lenders because lenders simply refused to extend debt, even though their companies were profit, profitable. That was a real lesson to me in diversification. And and I, I must admit, I am a huge fan of diversification. So um, if I use that word a lot, please understand where I'm coming from. It was also actually, the GFC was interesting because it was also a real lesson in human psyche. We had quite a few of our clients or investors actually added to their investments over that time when it was just literally awful. If you remember when Lehman Brothers went broke and, and, and those sort of times, uh, we had quite a few investors put extra money in and they made enormous amounts of money as a result and they're still benefiting from it today. Um, and it reminded me of the old saying when I was thinking about this about Baron Rothschild who, who said, you know, obviously hundreds of years ago, but it's still relevant today. He said the time to buy is when there's blood in the streets, you know, when things look as bad as they possibly can. That's the best time to buy. Uh, but you have to have a real stomach to do that and it's pretty tough. Um, in terms of human psyche. Um, and, and COVID, look, COVID also really, really interesting because probably more than anything else, it was a true black swan event. I mean, a lot of people thought another outbreak was possible um, after SARS, even probable. Um, and, you know, many people, including Bill Gates, were you know concerned by the global lack of preparation for such an event. But I don't think anyone foresaw how quickly it would take over the world, and that's why the market fell, fell so much. And if you think about stocks, you know, at the start of last year, let's say December 19 or January 2020, everyone loved Sydney Airport as a stock, right? It was an impregnable, impregnable fortress, a money-making machine, really, and, you know, Five months later, international passengers' movements have dropped almost 100%. Um, you know, so really the lesson for that is no matter how confident you are in a stock's premise, just remember that something can happen from left field which actually ruins your investment premise. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch that uh, those sort of things happen. So I guess, the, you know, if, if we think about going back to your uh, original question about experiences and so on the key learning for me from all of that is that markets actually do go up generally over time um, they're very volatile equity markets are and people have to remember that but the key learning is that markets do go up over time 
And these experiences, which, you know, really cataclysmic sell-offs happen sort of once every seven to 10 years, but it's also taught me the, the dangers of having too much debt. I think a little bit of debt is fine. It tends to enhance the, the total return, but because asset prices, you know, particularly equity prices can fall enormously, having, having enough time to get back into the market is fine unless you've got too much debt um, and then you might have to repay it. And so at the wrong time. So that they're probably the major learnings um, and from the experiences anyway. There's so many good examples in there and I um, I find it really interesting. So I I started in markets sort of after the tech wreck, just after oh. it really. And I'd, I'd sort of been around during it but not close enough to markets to have any idea what was going on at all. And, uh, and then... So I worked in a broking firm from 2001 to 2003 and everyone around me was so depressed, like just depressed. (laughs) Life was really, really terrible because all of your clients had lost a lot of money. A lot of them had lost a lot of trust. Uh, There was nothing sexy to sell anymore. It didn't make any sense. The sort of... um, the boom uh, with China hadn't become apparent yet. So I... uh, I've experienced a period post a crash when everything flattens out and yeah. and I also found the GFC fascinating. That was the first time I was sort of on the ground as things were falling apart and what, what I found most fascinating about that for many, many retail investors was they were absolutely brutalised by that experience. They found it so traumatic to lose money for so long. It went on for 18 months from the peak to the trough. And you kept thinking you'd hit the bottom and then it went again. And not as dramatically as as 87 as you were talking about, but it just kept going. And I think that just exhausted people. Like it really just eroded their confidence so much. They were exhausted by it. And they also had a permanent loss of capital. And I'm fascinated by that compared to what happened last year where certainly people lost money very, very quickly, but the government stepped in so quickly and central banks stepped in so quickly that the permanent loss of capital didn't occur for investors so much unless they sold, Mm. but things didn't go to zero. Like they, they didn't never trade again as you use many examples. I just want to ask you a little bit about the current economic environment because you've seen all of these different collapses in markets. Yeah. Central banks have, have certainly supported markets in the past and they've done their best to ensure that people don't lose too much money so the economy collapses completely. But what's happening now? I said we keep saying unprecedented too often and I'm going to say it again. But <laughs> yeah, we do have. It's not even record low interest rates zero no. interest rates right no. around the world or negative. I mean, this is unbelievable. Not just some pretty, it feels unbelievable, right? And yeah. also this incredible fiscal stimulus as well. Some governments throwing money at all sorts of things. And yeah, we've got theoretically a conservative government in Australia who are throwing money at things they wouldn't yeah. have dreamt of throwing money at two years no. ago. So the world's really changed. Does it feel similar to any previous periods to you or does it really feel uncharted? Um, in terms of interest rates, it is unprecedented. Uh, you know, I mean, Australia issued some debt very recently at a negative interest rate. I mean, who would have thought that was actually possible um, going back a few years ago? Um, in, obviously, enormous amounts of spending to avoid depressions and recessions is something that's happened a lot 
around the world, right? So certainly that's something that, you know, you'd expect and, you know, maybe the best example is, you know, the level of spending that went on in, in the, during the world wars. That took decades to repay. But the one thing that's different this time is just how low the interest rates are. And, and so for me, I guess the interest rates are the key thing for me to, that I focus on at the moment and, uh, because they're lower than they have been in pretty much anyone's investing lifetime globally. And because rates are so low, it distorts valuations in all asset classes. And I think that's a, the thing to remember. Other asset classes can be very expensive in an absolute sense compared to history, but still look attractive in relation to cash. And that's, you know, as some people call us T-I-N-A, there is no alternative. Um, that's very much the case with a lot of people that they they need income to live on and they can't get it out of cash. So they're going into other asset classes and not they're not necessarily natural holders of those other asset classes. So you know, one of, one of the areas that, having said that, that does actually look pretty good value to us in an absolute sense is uh, Australian real estate trusts. So things like Stockland, they actually do look quite attractive um, because they got sold off during COVID because of fears about rentals. Uh, and they haven't really recovered, but certainly the rentals have recovered. The, the other thing I guess I'd probably say does worry me is 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 the physical level of monetary stimulus stimulus that's gone on around the world and, and certainly in Australia's case it's unprecedented in, in peacetime anyway and it's quite clear to me that the global debt burdens are, are going to have to be paid back over decades not years and that will require genuine sustainable economic growth globally in order to repay that debt. So, you know, a lot, a lot of commentators do worry about the physical le level of spending that's taken place. But, you know, if you think about Australia, I'd, I'd probably argue um, that it does actually appear that the economic growth in Australia has been somewhat protected by that level of spending. So you have to wonder if they didn't spend all that money, just how bad the economy could have got. And, and so I do think it's justified, but it does worry me because, when economic growth does start to consolidate and start to grow again strongly, I think there's huge implications for the direction of interest rates. I mean, as you mentioned, Gemma, right up front, you know, they're basically zero, right? So they haven't they haven't got much to to go other than up. And if investors start to believe that interest rates are going back up, I think we'll see enormous volatility in other asset classes. Because, you know, if you think about it, at the end of the day, the cash rate is the ultimate risk-free asset. And if the cash rate becomes an attractive asset class, then there's going to be a lot of people that will reduce their exposure to other asset classes. So, you know, for, your, for the listeners um, and, in, you know, the professional investors and, and, and all investors, just have a think about uh, the level of in, and direction of interest rates when they're making that call to invest in markets. I think that's a, um, a really good point. There's, uh, I mentioned earlier, we've seen this massive influx of new investors over the last 12 months. They are absolutely doing what you're saying, that they have had to potentially come to markets because <laughs> they're not making any money in the bank uh, yeah. and, you know, term deposits are not an option. But also a lot of retail investors have have taken their cues from professional money managers over the years and learned to buy the dip 
right? So a lot of yeah. our investors are very contrarian. When uh, when a share gets sold off, they'll leap all over it. So if I look at our numbers daily, they're usually buying the thing that got sold off, uh, right. which is quite interesting, regardless of the reason it was getting sold off. A lot of our investors have just done unbelievably well over the last 12 months. As I said, people have not had that permanent loss of capital. A lot of new investors entered at the lows or shortly after the lows. The market's up dramatically since those lows. So a lot of people have just made very good money over the last 12 months and they're feeling really confident about investing. My only concern, and I am sort of genuinely thrilled for so many people, I think it's a fantastic introduction to investing. Doesn't get better yeah. than that, right? Um, brilliant. <laughs> well done, you. Certainly better than my first start, I tell you. Um, and the first thing I bought, I think it's still underwater, and that was a long, long time ago. Uh, <laughs> but they've done so well. My only fear, and it's a little fear, but I am a little concerned that people might have had so much early success. They might mm-hmm. be a little bit blind to some of the risks that pop up over the years in investing. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, it's a great observation. Um, yeah, I, I think that maybe the best thing to do in terms of thinking about this is equity markets generally represent economic growth, which in Australia's case is, you know, GDP has been about 3% roughly plus inflation. So let's say inflation is 2%. So total economic growth is about 5% plus productivity, uh, which might be, say, 1% or whatever it is, long-term productivity growth. And then, um, you know, you've got specific economic or company factors. What that's meant really over the long term is that Australian equity markets and, and generally most equity markets tend to return around sort of 8 to 10% per annum. Um, depending on the country, and that's been the case with Australia. Um, so, you know, the 50% rise we've seen this year uh, from the low is completely unsustainable. I mean, we don't provide forecasts, but, you know, I think it's not unreasonable to expect a long-term Australian equity return from here, um, let's say over the next 10 years, of somewhere between 5 and 8% per annum. Uh, so nothing like the 5 not, nothing like the 50% return. Um, I think people have got to centre their expectations a little bit realistically. You know, it's it's interesting. I actually saw a very, quite a funny YouTube actually yesterday, but it was quite concerning. Um, it was two people saying how easy it was to make money in the stock market and they have a special system, in inverted commas, I guess, uh, which funds their lifestyle and they were standing next to their Maserati or whatever it was. Um, and all you have to do is you buy stocks that go up. And um, and then you sell stocks when they don't go up. And it sounds incredibly simple when they say it like that. Uh, and all you have to do is subscribe to their channel to get more information naturally. But Was, I mean, it, was what, this real? It wasn't? Yeah. No, it was kind of, I mean, it was actually so funny that I sent it to a couple of clients, but, um, you know, but a kind of, it, it's breathtaking in its simplicity in terms of, like, I actually think they might believe it. Um, but, you know, look, as you know, and, and I know, and all the listeners know, it's not that simple. Um, you'll, you'll get a lot of your investment decisions wrong and, and how you handle your losses is the key to how well you do over time. But I do worry about people who, who've, who've had such a fantastic experience, uh, particularly in some of the tech stocks and 
just understand that that's not um, necessarily going to compound forever. Um, shares can pause for many reasons. They can pause because the, the run-up has been too strong. They can they can fall because of COVID. Um, they can literally come out with an announcement that's like Ben's Phil, going back to my earlier comment, that changes the direction of the company forever. Uh, so there's so many things that can go wrong. It's just unrealistic to expect um, the returns that we've seen in the past six months. That sorry, that example about the videos it shouldn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, uh, you should put it on your. No, don't put it on your. <laughs> these people might they, they might come famous. We'll put it I'd on that trade. Why not? I imagine yeah, our compliance exactly. people might have something to say about that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Finally, Steve, one last question. I mean, you've given so much advice through this. I feel a bit um, that maybe the question is redundant, but of the things you think about when you look back at what you've been doing so far and the things that you you apply daily when you're making decisions now, because it's not just your money, it's a lot of investors' money as well. What's the best advice you can give an aspiring investor? Uh, look, there's probably a couple of things, right? So I think the first thing is just because something's expensive or cheap, doesn't mean that the share price is going to necessarily follow. I think it's it's important to realise that the quality of company is the ultimate long-term uh, determinant of share price performance, the quality and the growth in earnings. Uh, so just, just bear in mind, if something looks super, super cheap, maybe there's a reason for that. Um, so you know, over-relying over on valuation is dangerous, but you must... It's really important to have some aspect of valuation in your investment decision, I think. Um, I think one of the things that is important too is for the investors to make a, a conscious decision what sort of investor they are, um, and it has to be it has to be consistent with their personality. And what I mean by that is some investors love trading, right? I, d I don't like trading. I'm a long term investor, so I'll I'll buy something and hope that I can hold it forever. But there are other people who genuinely love taking profits and buying little dips and stuff like that. It's important that your investing style suits your personality so that you don't do the wrong thing when things go wrong. Yeah, I, I'm, I, it's entirely legitimate and obviously a lot of NAB trade people do this to, to buy stocks yourself. I think it's fantastic and I encourage everyone to do it, to develop an interest. Uh, for me, I put all my money in, in funds because I just don't have the time to do you know, the individual research on the 50 or 60 stocks uh, that, that I need to get my head around. So I'd, I'd prefer, you know, running the company here at SGH. I'd probably prefer, I'm just lazy from that perspective. I'm happy to keep it in the phones. Um, I think it's important to accept that you will get investments wrong. Um, it doesn't mean you're a bad investor. It's a fact of investment life. And even the very best investors will get at least a third, maybe 40% of their investment decisions wrong. The important thing is to recognise when you are wrong and cut your losses and get out and move on and not to brood over it. The other thing, look carefully at interest rates, and we've spoken about this, um, so do, do look carefully at interest rates. I think be very wary of market forecasters. Um, when I say that, I mean, there's some fantastic market forecasters out there, but what tends to happen is the more confident the market forecaster is, the more t people tend to believe what they're saying. But um, really, real confidence in markets is something that has been proven to me time and time again that a high level of confidence is not necessarily warranted. Um, so I'm trying to choose my words carefully there. And really, a, a couple of other things 
research and read as much as you possibly can. The more you read and the more you research, the luckier or the more the more hits you'll get. And, and obviously, the more educated you are as an investor, read historical investment books. It's just so important to get a sense of history. Uh, but if something does keep you up at night, night after night that you're worried about, maybe just sell it. Um, certainly, that's been my... My, my sort of thing over over time, if I've got a stock that really worries me, I'm probably better selling the stock and looking for other opportunities. I guess in, in other things, reinvestment's really important. If you can afford to reinvest your earnings, your dividends, and even add a little bit, it's amazing how your money compounds over time. And And, and people don't really appreciate always the value of reinvestment and the value of adding even a hundred bucks a month um, to your investment. It just, it just adds up. And I have mentioned diversification Gemma before, but diversification is incredibly important. Um, and for many people, financial advice is really important too, right? It finding a financial advisor that you get on with um, that can help you through your investment journey. And probably finally, and it's almost an ad for our company, but um, I'm a genuine believer in active management, um, which is effectively what all the clients of NAB Trade are. Um, but I do believe that index investing is, a, is sometimes dangerous. It's not always dangerous, but um, you know, when you've got indices that are dominated by one or two stocks, it can become very unbalanced. Uh, so active investing, particularly in downturns, is, is important. Uh, look, there's probably heaps of other bits of advice, but they're probably the key ones that have occurred to me over the past, you know, 30 years. Steve, I'm actually going to write an article summarising those because I was noting them down as you spoke and there's about 11. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just brilliant advice, but I'm just thinking if you're just listening, you won't remember 11. I'm going to write them down. So if you're listening and you want to to go back and look at those again, have a look on the NABTRADE website. I've written them all down. Steve... (laughs) That was fabulous. Thank you so much. You guys, so SG Hiscock, your business, you produce a whole wealth of insights. You've got a whole team full of people, not all with the same experience that you have. You've got your core group of five, but you've also got many other managers and researchers. You do the work to research this really broad range of assets. How do people keep up to date with what you're working on, where to find your stuff, all that kind of thing? Well, two ways. I mean, our website, which is sghiscock.com.au, um, or probably the best medium is actually our LinkedIn page. Um, so we're SG Hiscock and Company on LinkedIn. And that will, the great thing about that is that will alert people to when we have our webinars. So we had 22 webinars last year, not just on the funds, but, you know, on equity markets. Uh, we had a fantastic one with the Doherty research team on COVID. Um, so we, we try and have some really interesting and relevant webinars during the year um, and, and monthly newsletters for our funds. So really, they're, they're the key, but probably the website or our LinkedIn page, Gemma, are probably the best places. Uh, but look, I, th- I think it's very important. We're not financial advisors. We are fund managers. So we don't give advice. Um, if people need advice, it's really important they seek you know, professional financial advice um, rather than look at our stuff. 
<laughs> I'm sure people understand that. There are uh, yeah. <laughs> many, many listeners who actually are advisors, but also many listeners who yeah. uh, who take advice, and many others who like to uh, to get many ideas and process them for themselves. Steve Hiscock from SG Hiscock, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. So we love hearing your feedback. We love your questions. Any topics you'd like to hear about in the future, please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.